You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, my original intention was to cover verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 1, but very early in my studies, basically opening up the text this week and reading it, I realized that there's no way we're going to get through uh, four verses, and we're actually going to be in verse 3 again. Uh, just to give you a little bit of perspective into my life as I prepare, um, there was some discouragement this week, and the reason that there was discouragement is because I never want people to think that I am just prolonging this. Like, oh my goodness, how much can you possibly say? Uh, why are we still on verse 3? We're going to be in this uh, uh, book forever. Um, also, because I have been accused in the past of uh, my sermons being a little bit too heady, uh, too intellectual, uh, deeper than they should be. Uh, and so Satan works in that way to discourage me and to say, just go through, just push through it quickly. Well, with these things in mind, uh, I shared those thoughts with uh, the leaders in the church, with uh, Alan and Tim and Bob this week, and we came to the conclusion that the goal of this sermon series is not to get through the book of Ephesians, but to actually get the book of Ephesians. And so with that in mind, we will go as slowly as we need to. We will get through this book, I promise you. Um, but uh, there is, there's too much in here. I'm telling you, there's too much in here. And I said it last week, to just rush through this would be a disservice to you. You need to think about these things. You need to chew on them uh, during the week. Just sitting in here listening for 45 minutes on a Sunday is not going to do it. You need to contemplate these things. You need to study them. You and I need this stuff. This is not me filling up 45 minutes on, on a Sunday morning. This, there's a point to this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. These are life-giving words, and so we need to read them and study them over and over. We need to do the mental work that is necessary to dwell on these things, to meditate on these things throughout um, the week not just on Sunday morning. As I mentioned, uh, for, for proof of this, I mentioned in the introductory sermon that if you look at this letter, Paul in the first three chapters is laying down one amazing truth after another, and they are so amazing that right in the middle of it, he stops and says, I just got to pray to God. I have to pray to God that you actually get what I am saying. And he says, God, open up their eyes to comprehend this. And then when he's done presenting these wonderful truths in chapters 1 through 3, he stops and he prays again for comprehension. You and I need to get this stuff. That same prayer that he prayed 2,000 years ago is the same prayer that you and I need to pray today that we would get this stuff. Why? Because we live in a fallen world that is in rebellion against God. And we have forgotten who we were created for and what we were created to be. Do you hear that? We have forgotten who we were created for and what we were created to be. 
I want you to, before we read verse 3 of chapter 1, I want you to skip down to verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We might be to the praise of his glory. You and I were created to be something. Ultimately, we were not created to be the world's greatest athlete or the world's greatest doctor or accountant or whatever it may be or even father or mother. Those things are all important. But ultimately, you and I were created to be to the praise of his glory. If you think about it, we were meant to be trophies of grace displayed in the kingdom of heaven as if God is taking people through his heavenly kingdom and saying, I got to show you my beloved daughter because she is to the praise of my glory. I have to show you my beloved son. He is to the praise of my glory. In the way that they live and act, they reflect me. They praise me in their thoughts, in their words, in their actions. They are to the praise of my glory. That is what you and I were created to be. Nothing else is as important as that. And the only way to be to the praise of his glory is to grasp the truths that are laid forth in this book and then to actually put them in to practice. And we will never grasp these truths, as I said before, just listening for uh, 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. You have to meditate upon them and never forget them because there's so much richness, richness, uh, richness in here. Today, as I said, we're not going to get past the phrase in the heavenly places. That's all we're going to talk about today because I started to study this and I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord, there is so much in here. And I just struggled because I'm like, how in the world can I present this? And I'm going to mess it up. I am sure. I am not going to be able to uh, say all that I want to say in the way that I want to say it because this stuff is beyond all of us. And I'm just hoping that we can just start to glimpse a little bit about what this actually means. And so I don't apologize for going slowly as a shepherd. I know that this is what is best for all of us. And so let's read our verse again. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me pray. Father, we need to get this. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to get this. In the name of the Son, amen. I want to begin by asking you a couple of questions. The first question is this. Where is Christ right now? Where is Jesus right now? Now, there is a sense that Jesus is with us. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I will be with you always until the end of the age. So there is that sense that Jesus is with us. But 
physically, and we'll see this as we progress, Jesus is physically present with the Father in heaven. He's with the Father in heaven. After his death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven to be with the Father who he left to come down and do the work here on earth, the work of redeeming us, of buying us back to God. But he has returned to the Father. And so he is with us, spiritually speaking, but he is physically in the heavenly places. Now, if we are truly in Christ, as we will see as we progress through this amazing book of Ephesians, then where are we? Where are we today? Well, I'll say we are physically present here on earth but we are spiritually present with Jesus in the heavenly places. You and I need to get this. We need to understand this. We'll see this a little bit later on, but Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. It is in heaven. And if this is true, and it is, then let me ask you another question. Are you living more like a citizen of earth or a citizen of heaven? Are you living more like a citizen of this world and the system of this world, or are you living more like a citizen of heaven? My prayer is that by the time we are finished, you will understand the difference and that you will embrace fully your citizenship in heaven and live that out with all the power and the benefits that come along with it. We as a family love to travel. Um, uh, before I met my wife, I had only been to one other country besides the United States. That was Canada because I literally lived 30 minutes from Canada. Uh, but since we have been married, our family has been privileged to uh, visit uh, over 20 countries on five different continents. Um, we love to travel. We love to see the beauty and architecture of other places. We um, love to experience the culture, to, to taste their foods, to uh, visit with their people and get to know people uh, in other countries. But at the end of the day, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz got it right when she said, there's no place like home. There is no place like home. I know that America has a ton of problems as does every other country in this world. But when it comes right down to it, America really does seem to have it all. America is a beautiful land with such diversity in land, right? The mountains, the, uh, the Niagara Falls, the, the valleys, the deserts. The, uh, it's just beautiful country. And it's filled with a diversity of people from every country around the world speaking languages from all over the world. America truly is the land of opportunity. And as bad as the rap that we get, everyone wants to be here, right? Everyone wants to come into this country. And I know we complain a lot about it a lot, but we have arguably the best political system in the world. Notice I didn't say the best politicians, but the best political system in the world, right? A free democracy. We truly are the land of opportunity. America is great. This country is uh, such a part of me that when I travel elsewhere, I cannot help but think, speak, and act 
like an American. I can't help it. It's just who I am. And when I am in another country and I visit a McDonald's in that country, I expect a large drink to be at least 32 ounces, right? But it's not. I expect there to be ice in that drink without having to pay for ice. I expect to be able to get as many free refills on that drink as I want. But that's not the case. And if I eat a pizza, even if it's in Italy, I expect that pizza to taste like Domino's or Little Caesars. That's what I expect because that is real pizza. I've had a pizza in Italy and it is not real pizza. I'm sorry. Why? Because America is in me and I am in America, right? I can't detach myself from that. I think and I speak and I act like an American. And I'm okay with that. I was born here. I have lived the vast majority of my life here and I will most likely die here in America. But as much as I love and appreciate my U.S. citizenship, I have a greater and more lasting citizenship. As much as I may love being identified with America, I have a greater and last, more lasting identity. And as much as I may strive to defend and properly represent America, I have a greater kingdom to defend and to represent, and that is the kingdom of God. And if you're a Christian today, then all of that is true of you as well. You have a heavenly citizenship. You are identified and united with the God of this universe. And you represent his kingdom here on earth. This reality is bound up in that simple phrase, in the heavenly places, which is why we're not going to get past that today. In the heavenly places, what in the world does this mean? This phrase is used uh, in verse 3 and two other places in Ephesians chapter uh, 1 through 3. And we're going to look at all three to see what we can learn. Okay, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study today, so bear with me. We might get a little bit heady, um, but that's okay. All right? So Ephesians 1, 3 is the first verse that we're going to look at. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to all these passages because I really want you to see them for yourself. Mark them in your Bible and look at them later. You need to do that. Okay? Okay, Ephesians 1, 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. First of all, that phrase in Christ, you're going to see it a ton in all the verses that we're going to learn, that we're going to read today. In Christ, in Christ, you are in Christ. We're going to explore what that means in the following weeks. But you are in Christ in the heavenly places. At the root of Paul's celebration here is the idea that by virtue of being in Christ, we are elevated to the heavenly places. That is where we, in a sense, exist. The heavenly places is that immaterial reign of the unseen universe which lies beyond, beyond the physical world that we can experience with our senses. 
It's the heavenly places. Temporarily and physically, you and I live here on earth, but spiritually, we live in the heavenly realm with Christ. Let me show you how Paul demonstrates this reality by looking at the other two uses of this phrase in the heavenly places in the first three chapters. The, the next one is in Ephesians 1.20. So if you can turn, uh, look down there. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 19 and read through 23 so that we can get the full context of these verses. Here's what he says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn that God raised up Christ and seated Christ at his own right hand. That is what we learn about Christ independent of us there. So now I want you to turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. We just saw in Ephesians 1.20 that Jesus was raised up and seated with the Father, seated by the Father. And now look at this. He talks about our former condition at first, and he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 begins with a very wonderful word, but. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now listen to verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Paul just said? The exact same description that is used of Jesus in chapter 1 of being dead, raised, and then seated at the Father's right hand is also said of us, that we were dead, that we have been raised, and that we have been seated together with Christ. The exact same verbs are used in the Greek text to describe both of those. And another thing I want you to notice about those verbs is that they're all in what tense? The past tense. They're in the past tense. There is, yes, for sure, a future reality to these where our physical bodies, though they die, will be raised up again. And never see corruption again. There is a future reality where we will be seated and reign with Christ in the spiritual realm. But there is also a present reality to this as well. When you embrace Jesus 
as Savior and Lord, you are at that moment, at that moment, united with him. When Christ died to sin, you died to sin. And we'll explore that more in the weeks to come. When Christ was raised up, you were raised up. And when Christ was seated in the heavenlies, you also were seated with him in the heavenlies. One author said it this way, quote, <clears throat> The believer's spiritual resurrection is in conjunction with Christ's physical resurrection. As he died physically, we were dead spiritually. So also as he was raised physically, we were raised spiritually. This talks about the believer's positional resurrection and not their future physical resurrection. End quote. And then he goes on uh, to say the same thing is true of being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He says this, quote, And God raised and seated Christ in the heavenlies physically, so has God raised and seated us together with Christ in the heavenlies spiritually. End quote. Therefore, you and I as Christians, we function in two realms. We function in the physical realm and we function in the spiritual realm. And let me remind you, as the Bible does over and over again, the physical world and all that is in it is passing away. Where do you think that you should use most of your efforts? Not in this physical world that's passing away, that might last at best a hundred years, and then it's gone. This has major, major implications for the way that we live in this life. Before you came to Christ, you were dead, spiritually speaking. We see this, we just read it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. You were physically alive, but spiritually dead. The result, and listen to this, the result is that you could do nothing, absolutely nothing, to please God. And I want to stop here for a second and say this. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, you are not in Christ, you have not given your life to Jesus, then there is no way that you can please God. You cannot please God at all. It doesn't matter. If you think that you're doing something for God, if you don't know Christ, if you have not given your life to Christ, you cannot please God. You are a spiritually rotting, repulsive course, uh, corpse in the eyes of God. It's as simple as that. But when you came to Christ, the Spirit of God came into us and made us alive, spiritually speaking. And now for the very first time, you and I are able to actually please God. We're actually able to live in a way that is pleasing to him. But only as we function in the spiritual realm with a heavenly mindset and a heavenly view of this world. There are several passages that point to this and I want to look at them. And once again, I'm going to ask you to follow along uh, with me and turn there. Uh, I want I want to see these before we get into the practical implications of this. The first is Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 1 through 16. Yeah, 16 verses. We're going to look at them, okay? Um, there is too much in here. I'm going to read some stuff, and you're going to be like, what does that mean? Uh, 
we're not going to be able to get into all of the implications of this. This is a lengthy passage, but it's packed with important truth that you and I need to get. Once again, what I'm trying to do is show you that as Christians, you and I are to live in the spiritual realm. And so you'll see this contrast between walking in the flesh, that, that physical realm only, and walking in the spirit. Okay? I'm going to read and comment as I go along. Okay? Which I know is going to be a disaster for when Alan puts this together for the, uh, the website. So I apologize in advance. Um, okay. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Could we not just stop there? And <laughs> we could be there for a year, all right? Um, but in Christ. Did you hear that? In Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Remember that Christ died and then rose up again so that we could spiritually die to sin and then rise to new life. Okay, moving on. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's the key. That's what we're getting at. What it means to walk in the flesh and what it means to walk in the Spirit. You as a Christian have been made alive spiritually. Therefore, you must walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That means that they are living purely natural lives. They are living and loving this world and the things of this world. They are loving the material possessions of this world, the fame, the popularity. Uh, they are buying into the mindset and the philosophies of this world. How does the world react? This is how I'm going to react. They're buying into that. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For, the mind, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Not indifferent, hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There it is. 9 gives the contrast. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Once again, we died to sin and we have been raised up with Christ. And then in verse 12, he goes on to talk about the implications of this he says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to live to the flesh. 
uh, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Die. You will die a spiritual death forever, separated from God in what the Bible calls hell. Why? Because you cannot please God. Moving on, he says this, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds that are in the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We'll see this in Ephesians 1. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, something else we'll see in Ephesians 1, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What's Paul's point? Paul's point is that you have been made alive in the Spirit, therefore walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. The next passage that I want you to turn to is Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21. Here I want you to see the contrast between those um, who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. <clears throat> those who are living purely in the flesh and those who are living in the Spirit. Here's what he says, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, listen to this, with minds set on earthly things. Remember Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. The mind that is set on earthly things things is hostile towards God. And here he gives the contrast in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In this passage, we see the contrast between a purely earthly citizenship and a heavenly citizenship. You may be saying, well, I'm here on earth. Right? I have a citizenship. I'm a, a citizen of the United States or, or wherever else it may be. I have my citizenship here. And to that, what I would say is this. Physically, you do. But spiritually, you do not. Physically, you do. You might say you have dual citizenship, right? Here on earth and then in heaven as well. Physically, you have that. But spiritually, as a person in Christ, you do not. Peter, in... Uh, 1 Peter 2.11 says this, that we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're aliens and strangers in this world. You know how when you come across someone who is from a different, even part of the country, or a different uh, country altogether, they just stick out like a sore thumb, right? They start to talk, and you hear their words, and or their accent, and you're like, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> right? Um, they, this is how we, as Christians should appear in this world. By the way that we think and the way that we talk, people should say, you're not from here, are you? You're not like this world. You are different from this world. 
as a result, they will see that we don't belong. And if this is true, if this is true that our citizenship is not in this world, then why in the world are we here? Why are you here? Okay. Well, thankfully, Paul answers that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Once again, what I'm trying to do is develop an argument so that when we get to the application, the application actually makes sense. You're like, yes, now I know what I'm supposed to do. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says this, From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me stop there for a second. Do you see the contrast between the flesh, which is old, and the implied spirit, which is new? Okay. Moving on, he says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we're getting to the purpose for which we are here on earth. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he gives the gospel in the last uh, verse. He says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see why, as a citizen of heaven, you're here on earth? Do you see what your purpose here on earth is? You are an ambassador. You're an ambassador for Christ. What is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who lives in a country not their own in order to represent the country that is their own. They are there to represent the interests and the agenda of their home country. That is what you and I are. Our membership is not here. Our citizenship is not here. We are citizens of heaven, but we are representing heaven's interests here down on earth. We are to speak on behalf of the king of our country, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what is his message? What is his agenda? Reconciliation with the world, right? That's the message. You guys are lost. You guys are separated from God. I am here on behalf of God to tell you you can be reconciled to him. That is why you are here on earth. You are not here ultimately, once again, to play sports or to get an education or to raise a family. You are here to represent Christ, to go to your neighbors, to your fellow classmates, to your family and say, be reconciled to God. Jesus is coming back. And it might be too late tomorrow. Be reconciled to God. The world is separated from God because of sin, and we're here to tell them how they can be right with God. That is why we are here. Sadly, very often we forget that, right? We forget that and we begin to live as if this world is our home, as if we actually belong here in the system of this world, which is why... In Colossians 3, 1 through 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have a new and better identity. You have been given a citizenship in heaven. And so you and I are to think and to speak and to act in a way that reflects that citizenship. Well, here's the point of all of this. Here's what I want you to get. Every single person in this world who does not know Jesus, who is not in Christ, who is not a Christian, is a dead man or woman walking. They are the real walking dead. Okay? Every person who does not know Jesus is a dead person. They are physically alive, but they are spiritually dead. But if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, then you are both physically and spiritually alive. But this world is not your home, at least not in its current condition. It will be recreated and it will be fit for the people of God one day. But this world is not your home and therefore you and I cannot have an earthly mindset. We cannot live as if this world that we experience through our five senses is all there is. We have to pray, as the Apostle Paul does, that we could see past the physical and see the spiritual that is going on all around us. If we could see the spiritual as we were intended to do through the eyes of faith, then we would see that the material things of this world are passing away. And we would not be pursuing them the way that we are. We would see that they don't last. That they will go away. And we would see that the rewards that we have in heaven, we would be able to see through the eyes of faith that there's a reward waiting for us in heaven that will never fade away, that will never go away, that can't be stolen or anything like that. We would see that through the eyes of faith and we would be pursuing that. We would start to seek the things that are above We would start to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his agenda. And we would realize that all the physical stuff that we need, the food, the clothing, the shelter, would be provided for us. Because God says, I want you on my mission. I'll worry about the rest of the stuff. All that stuff would be provided for us. Embracing the fact that we exist in the heavenly places would change the way that we think about material possessions. I think about the great men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, um, another chapter that you should read and meditate on. They had a heavenly mindset. Just give me, I'm going to give you two examples. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Here's what it says of Abraham in Hebrews uh, 11, 9, and 10. It says this, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, (laughs) right? He's here on earth. He's walking on earth. God has given him the land promise. But where is he looking? His focus is elsewhere, right? His focus is on a coming land. And Moses says this in verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Did you hear that? Choosing. 
He made a conscious choice. He looked at Egypt and said, most technologically advanced civilization in the world, the best food, servants waiting on my every need. Nah, I'm going to go with the people of God because this is all passing away. We've been to Egypt. It is all in ruins today, right? It's passing away. And so his focus was not on here. His focus was on another place. It was another place. And we are to do the same. We are to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Realizing that we function in the spiritual, uh, a spiritual not only governs uh, our pursuits, but it also governs the things that come out of our mouth. It, comes, uh, it governs what we say. Because we realize that in the spiritual, that when I say something, it just doesn't bounce off of a couple objects and then go away. But it actually echoes into eternity. That we will be held accountable for every word that we say one day. Our words are spiritual words. Therefore, we should be speaking spiritual truth. We should be using our mouths to build up people, not tear them down. We should be using our mouths to proclaim the message of God, not our own agenda. We should be using our words to point people to God, not point them to us. We should be using our words in a spiritual way. We are ambassadors. We're to be promoting the kingdom of heaven by telling others about Jesus and urging them to be reconciled to God. This is how we're to use our mouths. Going along with that idea of uh, an ambassador, I want to bring up one more point. There's many more things that we could talk as, as we're talking practical, but one more uh, point about what it means to live in the heavenly places. Every once in a while, you'll see in the news that one of the uh, U.S. embassies becomes under attack, right? They come under attack. Um, one of the most notable ones was in uh, uh, 2012 in Benghazi when they attacked the uh, U.S. embassy and, and killed the people that were in there. Here's what I want to say, taking it into the spiritual realm. The world hates us as Christians. Jesus said they would hate us, and they do hate us. They would love to rid this planet of Christians because we are annoying to them. We go counter to their culture. And so they will attack the embassies of God, if you will. They will attack the church and try to destroy it. Remember, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy And I believe that this persecution of the church will only intensify in the United States. It will get worse and worse. It will be harder. It will become harder to function as a Christian in this world. In whatever profession you are, you will not be wanted. So how are we to react during persecution? How are we to react? Well, if we see this persecution through spiritual eyes, what we will recognize, and this is very important, that that person standing before us is not the enemy. They are not the enemy. That physical person standing before us that may want to physically harm us is not the enemy. Rather, there are spiritual forces behind them. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh. And Jesus knew this, right? Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, as he is being spit upon and mocked and crucified, what does he do? 
Is he looking with those evil eyes at people and saying, oh, you're going to get yours, and you're going to get yours, and you're going to get yours? No. What does he do? He sees beyond the physical, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And if they heard those words, I'm sure that they would have said, we know exactly what we're doing. We hate you. You are wrong. We want to get rid of you. But they didn't know. There was a spirit. There were spiritual forces behind them, filling them with hatred, pushing them to crucify Jesus. He saw the spiritual forces. In fact, that word in the heavenly places, that phrase in the heavenly places is used also in Ephesians chapter 6. And if you're still in Ephesians, I'm going to encourage you to turn there. In Ephesians chapter 6, it is used to talk about the heavenly places in terms of the spiritual realm where this battle is going on. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, here's what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not a physical battle here on earth. It is in the heavenlies. It manifests itself here on earth, but it is not a physical battle. The results is that we are not to employ physical means to combat the enemy. We are to use spiritual means, which is why Paul goes right into verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, therefore put on the full armor of God. That is spiritual, right? You can't go to your local Christian bookstore and get the armor of God, right? The armor of God is a spiritual armor that we put on to defend us against the attacks of the enemy. You know what further it means? Here's what further it means, right? We're going to get really practical. That jerk of a boss or that fellow employee whose main mission seems to be to make your life miserable at work is not the enemy, right? That atheistic professor in school who mocks your faith is not the enemy. That insensitive person in church who said that thing without thinking or said it intentionally to hurt you is not the enemy. That ex-husband that you would like to throat punch, right, or that ex-wife that you just would wish would go out the face of the planet is not the enemy. There are spiritual forces behind them to destroy you, to hurt you, to get your mind off of the things of heaven, to fight with your words, to fight maybe with your physical fists. But they are not the enemy. They're spiritual forces. And therefore, as we are living and functioning in the spiritual realm, as God intended, we are to pray. We're to pray for them. That's crazy, right? Pray for them? Mm, no. There was a country song a couple of years ago that came out that I pray for you, and it was all this bad stuff. Like I pray, you know, you, your brakes go out as you're driving on the road. That's not the kind of prayer we're talking about here, right? <laughs> pray for your enemies, right? That's what Jesus said. We pray for them. We don't hate them, or we don't slander them. If we were using our spiritual eyes, we would see, we would recognize it's a spiritual battle. And then we would respond in a way that is God-honoring with our words and our actions. 
you're probably thinking about how you've responded to someone this week, which just shows us that we all have a lot of work to do, right? We all have a lot of work to do. And this is why we need the truths of this book, and this is why we will move slowly through this book. There's one more verse I want to quote. It's in, it's in Galatians. You don't have to turn there. Galatians 4, 19. Paul is absolutely frustrated with the Galatian people. They're not getting it. They were started off in the spirit. Now they're walking in the flesh again, and he just condemns them for that. And here's what he says. He says, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Man, I've worked so hard, and you're not getting it, and I'm all in labor again. The labor of childbearing is what he's talking about. Man, I want Christ to be formed in you. Christ needs to be formed in us until we start to reflect his character in this world. And that's why we will work hard through these sermons to see that that is actually accomplished. So pray for yourselves. Pray for me. Uh, that we would get this stuff because it will transform us and it'll transform the community in which we live. Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, we didn't even scratch the surface of it. I know that I did not do justice to this text by any stretch of the imagination. It's so beyond us. Would you please, as much as we can bear, open up our minds to understand these amazing truths so that we can live them out in a way that honors you, that reflects your character, and that sees people drawn to you. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.